Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Hey, my name is Pastor Justin Hansen. For those of you who are new, I want to welcome you here. I also want to welcome those who are joining us online. I sound weird because Ohio kills my allergies. My goodness. But I feel great. I just don't know where my voice went. So I do have a cup of tea and we're going to make it through the service. I want to read to you a text message I got. This is why I love my job so much. This is why I love you guys so much. This was from somebody in the church wrote me uh, yesterday. It says, just a reminder to stay the course. Oh, I will. I promise you that. There are those in your congregation who support your vision wholly. Can't wait for Sunday. And this was the best part. The quote was this from Charles Spurgeon, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Is that not powerful? You know who you are who sent this. Thank you so much. I absolutely love pastoring this congregation. We love God's word so much that we design our Sunday morning service around it. And we are in the middle of a book or a, sp- a series called Spiritual Grit in the book of First Peter. We're in chapter three and we're looking at verses 18 through 22 today. The title of the sermon is Flip the Script. So I want to I wanna do something a little different. We're going to read verses 18 through 22, and then we're going to dive in and unpack it a little bit. Just so you know and you don't get afraid, I'm going to spend a good amount of time in the first part of this verse because it's setting up the next few weeks. And so if you're like looking at your your watch and thinking, man, he's got a lot to get through. Don't worry, we're gonna get, we're gonna get done on time, but we're gonna spend a considerable amount of time in those first few verses. Would you join with me? Verse 18, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, we love you and we love your word. So we are praying right now that you would just remove any distraction that we might have and that we could take this next 40 minutes and focus on your word and that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do, and that's speak into our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Peter is pointing us to Jesus and what an example Jesus is. Amen. When Jesus suffered, it was humiliating. He went through terrible humiliation. It was completely unjust. And the truth is that through all of that, he experienced his biggest victory, his biggest win, because when he suffered the most, he accomplished the most. Peter's already told his readers that they stand in God's grace in their salvation. They stand in God's grace in their submission. And now he's going to say, you can stand in God's grace in suffering. Those are the themes of First Peter. God's grace gives us the ability to stand in our salvation, our submission, and now our suffering. And hear me out. Suffering takes up the better part of this letter. Suffering. <laughs> Begins in chapter 3, verses 13, and it runs all the way to the end of the book. Those Christians who, who believe we are not meant to suffer, do not read First Peter. <laughs> and, and we need to re remember that this, this big idea that Peter's trying to get across to his readers is that even in suffering, we can win. Who doesn't like to win? Come on. Even in suffering, we can win. Remember, Peter's writing to some pretty discouraged Christians. They were experiencing immense suffering. They hadn't experienced it to the point of death yet. That's going to come. But at this point, they are being ostracized in their community. They are being treated bad. Their neighbors aren't being very nice to them. They're not living a real good life. And, and why were they suffering? Why are the, the believers that Peter's writing suffering? Well, it's not because their lifestyle of disobedience it's not because they were in the middle of sin. It's not because they were doing something that was bringing on this suffering. They, they weren't reaping what they had sown, so to say. Nope, actually, they were suffering for a reason that's very applicable to you and to me today. They were suffering because they had decided to follow Jesus. That's why they were suffering. They were suffering for their faith. They made the decision to follow Jesus in a culture that was going in the opposite direction. In fact, the culture that they were living in was the antithesis of godliness. Hello? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Can you relate? We find ourselves today in a culture that is going the opposite direction of godliness. And the further, listen, the further our society gets away from the Bible, the harder and the faster the opposition is gonna come to you and to me if we continue to follow Jesus. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So just in my lifetime, I think the progression of open hatred and hostility has increased against the Christian faith. I think we're living in a different day and age just from the time I was little, and I know my parents uh, would say the same thing, and my grandparents would say the same thing. I think we're seeing this progression, right? So it's very important we understand this. These amazing believers were suffering not because they were doing the wrong thing, but because they were doing the right thing. In fact, Peter has already alluded to it in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then last week in verse 17 Peter said, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Notice that he said, it's God's will that you suffer and you suffer for doing the right thing, for doing the will of God. That's gonna bring suffering into your life. 
So these people are being persecuted. They're under incredible pressure. The world around them seems to be falling apart. They aren't being treated nice by their neighbors. And he's writing to encourage them, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen this letter to encourage them and inspired by the Holy Spirit to encourage you and me today. He doesn't want to tell them their problems here on earth are going to go away. That's not what he does. He doesn't want to downplay their problems. Instead, he wants to be very real with them and tell them that they can be victorious even in the middle of suffering. What a powerful truth. I am excited to preach this. And the greatest illustration Peter knows is Jesus, right? Jesus suffered unjustly. He suffered persecution. He suffered hostility like no person could ever imagine. And yet in the midst of his suffering, he was absolutely victorious. Even in the middle of difficult suffering. And guess what? Here's what Peter's going to say, that you and I, if we are in Christ, we can have victory too. Even in the midst of suffering. So I'm going to make it really easy for you today. I'm going to give you four ways that Christ had the victory in his suffering. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's number one. He had the victory in his crucifixion. We see this in verse 18. It says, for Christ also suffered. Some of your translations say have died. For Christ also died once, big word there, for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. That's a reference to his crucifixion, but made alive in the spirit. He was victorious even though he was crucified. This passage is so packed with so many goodies. It's like a feast that's before us. I could have probably preached three weeks on this verse alone. And if you attend this church, you've been coming for a while, you believe me when I say that. I probably could have spent three weeks on this verse alone. We're not going to do that, though. But it is packed with all kinds of goodies. It's like Thanksgiving today. So much truth here about his crucifixion. Could have been my Easter sermon. So I'm gonna, I want you to take note of a few things. Here's what you need to take note of. His crucifixion was final. It was final. Christ also suffered once. So for Christ also, man, that indicates that they were suffering uh, These people were suffering, and now Peter is saying Jesus suffered also, just like you're suffering. But let's get real. Jesus suffered for our sins, and his suffering was unique, at least in the sense that he volunteered to suffer in our place. None of us in here have volunteered to suffer, really. We we do it because it's a part of following Jesus. Christ didn't have to suffer. He volunteered to do it. But look at that word once. Underline it, circle it, highlight it. That's an amazing word, once. I love it. Best part of this entire passage. What an incredible word this is because it means one time only, done once, never needing to be repeated. The most powerful word in all of this text. Why am I getting so excited about this word? Because it's a done deal. It is a done deal. Think about it. When you do something wrong, or when you do something and it doesn't work, what do you do again? You, you do it over, right? Okay, my son, who's learning to tie his shoes right now, he keeps doing it over and over and over and over because he's doing it wrong. I keep telling him, go around the loop, under the hole, 
cinch it, right? But he's got his own way of doing it, but he's gonna get it, he'll get it, because we all get it, right? But when you do it wrong, you have to do it over again. I learned that with my driving test. I did it wrong two times, okay? It took me three times to pass the driver's test. But guess what, on my third time, I got it, okay? I'm driving today, yeah. Think about the Old Testament. This is what I want you to think about too. So when you do it, when you do it and it's wrong or it's not really complete, you have to do it again. Think about the Old Testament when every year on the Day of Atonement, they had to bring a blood animal sacrifice for their sins, okay? They had to bring an animal, they had to kill it, and the blood had to be shed every single year. And doing this over and over again, it was indicating something. It was indicating that their sins were not dealt with completely. That's why they had to go and do it over and over again every year. If their sins were dealt with completely, then why would they need to go back every year? But Peter uses the word once here, and it is amazing because what Jesus did on the cross was complete. That's why Jesus, when he was on the cross in John chapter 19, 30, he said, when, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished, tetelestai in the Greek. It comes from the, the root verb teleo, which means to finish, to end, to accomplish, or to pay. So the word that was stamped on a bill in those days when you made your last payment, they would stamp uh, tetelestai. Paid in full, it was proof that your bill was paid. Okay, that's what Jesus did on the cross. It is done. It has been paid in full. That is our Jesus. That is the Savior that we worship and serve. It's done. He did it for you and I. Number two, or, or another thing I want you to notice about the crucifixion is it was accepted. Okay, it was accepted. So you look at, uh, for Christ also suffered once for sin. Okay, why did Jesus die? He died for sins. In the Greek, it could be translated concerning sins or as it pertains to sin. He died to pay sin's penalty. Jesus died to pay the penalty for sins. He gave his life voluntarily as a substitute to pay a penalty for our sins. There's a theological term for this, and I don't just say it to, to look all good. In fact, I might even pronounce it wrong and look bad, but I am gonna say it because I think it's important for you to know it. Uh, the, the theological term for this is propitiation, okay? And we often, oftentimes in our life, we'll hear that Jesus died for us. Well, he did die for us, that's true. He also died for the Father. Some of you said, well, I've never heard that, but think about it, God's law had been broken and Jesus died to satisfy that broken law. He died to pay it. I love the story of Billy Graham. They used to share this story. Isn't, wasn't Billy Graham an amazing human being? Aren't you grateful for him and his ministry? I still see the fruit of his ministry. Man, he, he, was a, a, he left such a legacy. Billy Graham used to tell the story about he was driving through an old little southern town and he was speeding and he was stopped by a policeman and he was charged for speeding. Billy Graham admitted his guilt, but he was told by the officer that he'd have to appear in court. So when he went to court, the judge asked, guilty or not guilty? And uh, Reverend Graham pleaded guilty. And the judge replied, well, that's gonna be $10. I'm gonna charge you a dollar for every mile you went over the limit. Wow, did they really, is that what it was back in? <laughs> I got a lot more when I went, got my ticket. Let me tell you. 
When he said it's going to be $10, all of a sudden he realizes, man, this is Billy Graham. This is this famous preacher evangelist. And he says, man, I'll, I'll tell you what, Reverend Graham, you have violated the law. The fine has to be paid. You've got to pay it, but, or it has to be paid. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay it for you. So he took a $10 bill from his own wallet, attached it to the ticket, and then he took uh, Pat, Reverend Billy Graham out, bought him a steak dinner that night. True story. And Billy Graham said, now, that's how God treats a sinner who repents. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you got to know Peter's going back. There's a lot of uh, Old Testament in, in this passage here. He's going back even to Leviticus uh, chapter 5, verse 7. It says, but if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Then again in Leviticus chapter 6, 30, it says, but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire, propitiation here, okay? Big word that means satisfaction because God is a holy God. His anger and justice burns against sin. You don't hear that a lot anymore behind the pulpit, but it's biblical. Our God hates sin. He's sworn that sin will be punished. There must be a satisfactory payment for sin. But God said, man, if I punish man for his sin, man's going to die and then go to hell. On the other hand, if I don't punish man for his sin, my justice will never be satisfied. So the solution, God said, well, I'm going to send, I'm gonna send uh, my son to become the substitute. He would take the sin of mankind upon himself in agony and blood, a righteous judgment and substitute for sin. That's what our Jesus did for us. His wrath burned out on the cross when his one and only son died as man's propitiation for sin. And this, this is love. That's love. Another thing about the crucifixion is it was the substitute we kind of just we already led into this but the righteous for the the unrighteous who's the righteous well that's Jesus who's the unrighteous that's you that's me a holy God died in place of a sinful man I don't get it I don't understand it I can't even fathom it but that's what God did and that's love Jesus came because of love, but his death was substitutionary. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His crucifixion was the bridge, too. Look at that phrase, that he might bring us to God. Prior to this, we were enemies of God. We were alienated from God. It was through the death of Jesus that he became the bridge back to God for you and me. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple, it was torn from top to bottom. The veil, that was kept, the veil in the temple, it was kept, uh, or it was there to keep people separated. In fact, only a high priest could enter through once a year, only through a blood sacrifice. It was kept there to pretty much say this, don't go any further, you've got to stop here. This God is holy, and you are not. You are unholy. You can't approach him. And now God's saying, you can approach. I'm the bridge. Now the way is open. I'm going to bring you to God the Father by what I did on the cross. And the veil was torn to prove it. Amen? That's the purpose of the death of Jesus. It was for reconciliation. It was a bridge for you and me to, to have communication with God once again.
to connect with our God, our creator. And that's what he does. It's an interesting Greek verb because the noun form of the verb is an introducer, somebody who brings you to somebody else. The word in the Greek is an intercessor or an introducer or a giver of access. There is a story during the Civil War. There was a soldier who lost both his brother and his dad to to death on the same day, and he wanted to see the president plead his case. So he was given a pass to do so. He went to the White House, but he was told by the guard on duty, you can't see the president. Don't you know there's a war going on, okay? The president is a busy man. Now go away. Get back out there on the battle lines where you belong. You can't just come up to the White House and expect to see the president. So he left. He was disheartened. He was discouraged. And he was sitting on this little park bench not far from the White House when a little boy came up to him. He said, soldier, you look unhappy. What's wrong? The soldier looked at the little boy, began to spill his heart to him. He told of his father and his brother being killed in the war and of the desperate situation back at home. He explained that his mother and sister had no one to help them with the farm. And the little boy listened and said, I can help you. And he took the soldier by the hand, led him back to the front gate of the White House. Apparently, the guard didn't notice him because they weren't stopped. They walked straight to the front door. The White House walked right in, and after they got inside, they walked right past generals and high-ranking officials, and no one said a word. The soldier couldn't understand this. He couldn't believe it. Why didn't anybody try to stop them? They reached the Oval Office where the president was working. The little boy didn't even knock on the door. He just walked right in and led the soldier in with him. There behind the desk was President Abraham Lincoln and his Secretary of State looking over battle plans that were laid out on his desk. The president looked at the boy and then at the soldier and said, Good afternoon, Todd. Can you introduce me to your friend? Todd Lincoln, the son of the president, said, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. The soldier pled his case before Mr. Lincoln, and right then and there he received the exemption that he had desired. It is because of Jesus that we have direct access to the Father. Let's never forget that. His crucifixion was the bridge for you and me to have access to God. And I want this to encourage you because we too can experience victory. Have hope today when you're suffering. Fix your hope on Jesus. Jesus needs to be the focus, okay? Number two, looking at verses 19 and 20. So he was, he was victorious in his crucifixion. He's victorious now in his proclamation. We'll start by reading verse 19. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. When I graduated from Bible college in 2006, I took a small church in New York and decided to do expository preaching. I would get through the book of First Peter. That's what was my goal. 22 years old, 23, I don't know, somewhere around that age. I took the five-year plan at Bible college. I remember getting to this passage, and I remember scratching my head and saying, I don't know what this means. <laughs> I don't know how to preach this. And... You know, when you're young, you think you have to have all the answers. The older I get, the more I realize I don't know. Uh, there's a lot in the Bible I just don't know and I don't understand. But when I was young, I thought I had to know everything. Somebody's going to ask a question. I don't know what I'm going to say. So I just literally skipped this verse and hope that nobody would even notice. <laughs> I also skipped the verse about wives submitting to the, their husbands. Those were the two verses that at 20. Three years old, I skipped. I'm not going to skip this verse now, because I'm. But I am going to start out by saying this: when 
Peter wrote these words, I don't think he realized that they'd become the most difficult to understand in all the New Testament. I don't think he, he wrote this with all the depth that we sometimes read into it. There's, there's truth here, though, that we need to build into our lives, and that's what I'm going to focus on today. So we won't be able to understand everything in the Bible. Yeah, your pastor just said that. Some of it will be a mystery to us. We'll always have questions, and I'm here to tell you that that's okay. It's okay. Here's, but what we, what we need to know for life is plain. It's plain in the Bible. The problem isn't so much that there are parts of the Bible that you and I can't understand. Instead, the problem is that we don't obey the parts we do understand. Okay? So the Bible reveals some things that we, we're going to find extremely difficult to wrap our minds around, some things that might even disturb us. And when we run up against these things, these parts in God's word that show us the limits of our intellectual capacities, uh, we don't need to jump ship and abandon our faith. Okay, Paul willingly admitted that there were things that were beyond his understanding, and Peter as well. We can follow both of their examples. We, we need to allow our limits to lead us to an awe-filled worship of a God that is so much higher than us. Right? So much higher. So Martin Luther said this, about this passage, the great theologian Martin Luther said, a wonderful text is this and more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> I have decided that if Martin Luther can't wrap his head around it, I probably won't be able to either. So here's what I wanna do. I want you to notice that in verse 18, says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. That means he physically died, all right? It says, but made alive by the Spirit. We've got to go back to verse 18 just for a minute, so it's going to transition into verse 19. Now, I don't believe that in that verse he's referring to his resurrection. Or, or yeah, but now in verse 21 he is, but not in this verse. I think if he wanted to say that Jesus physically resurrected, he would have said he died in the flesh and was made alive in the flesh. But notice what he says. He was put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. Now, not every translation says, says by the Spirit, okay? Some of the translations, like the ESV says, in the Spirit, the one we're preaching from. And this is important, hang with me. Some translations have the word spirit capitalized as if it refers to the Holy Spirit. But in the Greek language, there are no capital letters or small letters. It's all the same text. So there's no definite article in the Greek language. So a better translation is being, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in spirit. And I don't think he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's referring to Jesus's own personal spirit. I'm sorry, earlier I said I, I, I messed up. This is deep stuff. <laughs> earlier I said he's not referring to the physical resurrection. I meant to say he is. I probably just thoroughly confused all of you. Just hang with me to the end. I'm going to get you there, okay? Jesus physically died and his body remained in the tomb for three days while his spirit was very much alive. Now during that time between death and resurrection, which he mentions was a time of proclamation. Jesus had something to proclaim. He had a sermon to preach. He had an announcement to give. He had a proclamation to make. And according to this text, the proclamation was made to the spirits in prison. Peter tells us, in which he went, that means, that means in, in that living spirit apart from his body, which was in the tomb, the living Jesus went someplace. He went somewhere. The verb here refers to a personal going. It's also used down in verse 22 when he was ascended, or 
with his ascension. So it's the same verb. It means literally to go somewhere else. So Jesus went to a place. He went somewhere. Now, of all that we don't and maybe won't know about this passage, I want to focus on what we can know for sure, okay? (laughs) Here's a principle for Bible reading. When you don't understand something, you need to step back and stand on what you do know, okay? When you don't understand something, step back and stand on what you do know. You need to stand on what the Bible clearly teaches. So here's what we know about this text. Jesus did not go to hell and preach the gospel to lost people to give them a second chance. We know that, right? Because some people are going to read this and say, well, that's what he did. But he didn't speak to people, number one. Our text tells us that. He spoke to spirits. And we know the Bible teaches that we don't have second chances after death. Death brings finality, okay? So he's not giving sinners a second chance. In the book of Hebrews, it says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. He's no teaching in the Bible anywhere that after you die, you can go to a place and you can be prayed for and somebody can purchase a ticket for you to get out. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. No such thing as purgatory. We don't see that in the Bible. And in the New Testament, the word spirit refers to either angels or demons so that between the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection on that third day, he went to the spirit realm, he visited them. You look back in Acts, you'll see, you'll see passages like Acts chapter 2, 27 that says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. We know that Jesus for that time went and spoke a proclamation. He had a message to these spirits. Peter doesn't tell us what exactly he said to them. I think we can assume that he was preaching his victory, right? He had a proclamation to make. I can assume it was a message of his victory. He's reminding them that this thing is done and over with. It's done. They tried to stop what he was doing, but it's done. They've been defeated. He has victory, and now all who call on him are going to have victory as well. One theologian said this years ago, that hell was in the midst of its carnival when he arrived. They were probably celebrating this great defeat when Jesus showed up. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They thought they were winning. So in the middle of their victory party, Jesus shows up. He puts a damper on their shindig. He makes a proclamation that all their plans that they had to stop the work of God had been overturned. This reminds me of the Super Bowl that the Seattle Seahawks made it to. I'm sorry, Pastor Enos, I have to do it. Seattle Seahawks made it to the Super Bowl. They were playing New England, the New England Patriots, and I was watching it in Thailand after it had already been done. I was watching it with my father-in-law who knew the outcome. I didn't know the outcome. I remember as the Seahawks were marching down the field and it looked impossible, Russell Wilson throws this Hail Mary pass. He somehow catches it and he's on the one yard line. I jumped up and I threw a, I was celebrating because the Seahawks have now won two in a row. There is no way. We got Marshawn Lynch. There's no way we're not going to win the Super Bowl. I am celebrating and dancing. I'm excited. And all of a sudden, Russell Wilson decides not to give, well, it wasn't Russell Wilson, it was Coach Pete Carroll, decided not to give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. And they decide to throw it. He throws an interception and they lose. I imagine that this is what was happening when Jesus shows up on the scene. They were dancing and celebrating their victory and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and says it's over. 
He made that proclamation. And here's what Peter wants us to get. Listen, this is important. In our suffering, whatever Satan uses to stop your peace and your joy, listen, here it is. God has a purpose in it. And he made it by this proclamation. It's over. It's done. Jesus finished. Finished it. It's done. You have the victory. You might not see it now, but you have the victory. Now, verse 20, it says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. One view of this passage is Peter's describing what happened in the days of Noah, and it was actually the spirit of Christ who preached through Noah to this unbelieving generation before the blood, it's a, or before the flood. Very possible explanation of this verse, but a couple things that I want to say by way of application that we can be sure of today. Did you notice he says only eight people were saved when Noah preached? Now, I'm a pastor. I can't help but get depressed when I see that. (laughs) Eight people? Noah preached for 100 years. Eight people were saved. Eight. Hundred years of preaching and eight people are saved. Can you imagine building a boat in the desert, preparing for a flood, and it's never rained? No lakes, no oceans. They're in the middle of the desert. When crowds come to mock him, he would stand up and preach, God's going to set a flood, send a flood, and if you don't repent of your sins and enter in this boat, you're all going to die. They would have mocked him but faithfully for 100 years he preached and the only converts he had were his own family. That's it. Every time I go to a minister's meeting, I don't know why we focus on numbers, like numbers are the most important thing. I thought life transformation was, but that's what we do whenever we go to a a minister's meeting. What are you running now? What are your numbers? Pastor Brad Rosenberg, who pastored this church before me, he used to tell me, Justin, when they asked you that, say, well, I know we had five for sure. I was there in my family. He goes, that's what you need to tell them. (laughs) Noah was faithful. But I want to stress, stress this, only eight people were saved. Here's the point I want to stress for a minute. The majority is not always right. The majority is not always right. When you're listening to the voices of our culture around us, remember that the majority is not always right. And it's not just like when you turn on the TV and you're watching the news or what the secular world is thinking. I'm talking about within our Christian circle too. Remember the majority is not always right. There are times when I go to conferences and I'll sit and I'll listen to what all the, these church growth experts are saying today and I have to remind myself, the majority is not always right. Okay, it's not always right. The way to heaven is narrow and only a few find it. Only eight people were saved. So Peter's talking about Noah, he's talking about the floods and you know, he moves to baptism in verse 21. Jesus was victorious in his resurrection. We see this in verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to know this. When he uses the ark as a figure, uh, the word is tupos. From the word we get, I think I'm saying this right, antitupon, 
we get our word type or, or, the, or, or picture. So the idea is that the ark that Noah built was a type or a picture of Jesus that we go into and are safe. The ark, though, only had one door. When they entered into that door, God had to shut the door. Jesus is the way. No other way to the Father except through Jesus. And when they were in the ark, they were safe from the waters of judgment that came and took them all away. And those who were safe in the ark, a picture or a type of Jesus Christ and our salvation, were lifted above the waters and they were saved. The moment he mentions water, Peter goes to baptism. Now, I need you to know that the act of baptism is not what saves you. It's a picture that we are saved, just like the ark. Now, the ark was actually built. I believe that. I believe in an actual ark that was built that actually saved all those animals. I believe that. Baptism is also a type or a picture of our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. All right? Baptism won't save you. It doesn't wash us from our sins, but it's a picture. And more than a picture, it's our identification. Our baptism is this public declaration of our identification with Jesus. I love how Charles Spurgeon says, I thought I could have leaped from earth to heaven at one spring when I saw my sins drowned in the Redeemer's blood. When we go down in the water and we come back up, we're saying we're a new creation. I've heard pastors say that when they're, when they're doing baptism, some people will say, hey, pastor, hold me down a lot longer. I got a lot to wash. <laughs> I won't even get up and argue what kind of baptism you had because, again, baptism is a picture of what Jesus did for us. It's a public declaration. Heard one pastor out of California, Pastor John Miller, he said uh, he wants to do baptism by throwing them off the pier. <laughs> It's, it's, it's just a picture. It's a type. The baptism itself doesn't save you, but we're commanded to do it. It's a public declaration. I hope that makes sense. Jesus triumphed over suffering, sin, death when he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that everything he claimed is true. It means that my sins can be forgiven. I have his presence with me right now. I have his pattern that as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, his resurrection from the dead is a prototype of my resurrection. That as he rose physically and bodily and all those who die in Christ will be resurrected also from the dead. We will spend an eternity in our new resurrected body in the presence of God for eternity. We will raise in power. We will be raised in glory. The dead in Christ shall raise first. And the resurrection of Jesus was the forerunner for our resurrection. We also have this promise that he's going to come again. Isn't that amazing? And I'm going to move to my last, the last point here, verse 22. In Jesus was victorious in his ascension and in his exaltation. So look with me at verse 22. Who that's Jesus, by the way, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Listen to me, church. His ascension marked the end of his humiliation and his suffering on earth. And again, this was to encourage us. This is to encourage the suffering believer. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose and ascended back into heaven. You do not need to fear what man can do to you. No more will Jesus Christ suffer. He's ascended back to heaven. And now the exaltation, look at verse 22. He's gone into the heavens. And then it makes a statement. He's at the right hand of God. 
He's at the right hand of God. There you have it. That's what you call winning. <laughs> That's what you call victory. Okay, the term right hand, it means power and prestige. I'm sorry to all the left-handed people in here. Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess and all those in heaven and on earth and under earth, every single being he has authority over, he ascended, he's exalted, he's at God's right hand and he's going to bring you with him. He's gonna bring you with him. That's what I said, come on. Jesus suffered, but here's the deal. In his suffering, it led him to a painful death, but after, after crucifixion, he made a proclamation. He rose again and he was exalted. That's why we worship Jesus Christ. The whole point is that Jesus' suffering, it was leading somewhere. Okay, Jesus' suffering was leading to glory and so is yours. So is yours. We're... I get it, we're a minority in this hostile world right now. I understand that, just like Noah, just like those eight people. But the point is that God is gonna keep you and your future is secure. Have you ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? I love it. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is the core of what we believe. In fact, the Nicene Creed, it's named after a council that was around 325 AD. It was attended by 318 delegates. 318 delegates. Of these 318 men, all of them, all of them except for 12 had either lost an eye, a hand, or were limping. They could, some couldn't walk because they had been tortured for Jesus Christ. They suffered. But here they were vigorously defending doctrine, truth, forging what is biblical, a, a biblical belief system to pass on to generations because they saw a reason for the pain. And that's what God's plan for you and for me today. Our sufferings aren't even worth being compared to, or with our, our sufferings aren't even worth being compared to our glory we're gonna experience. Not even worthy to be compared. I love Oswald Chambers. He said, at his ascension, our Lord entered heaven and he kept the doors open for humanity to enter. Salvation is for anybody who will accept it. Anybody. And I want you to understand too, you know, there's a reason the prosperity gospel preachers don't spend much time in 1 Peter. <laughs> prosperity gospel preachers, they don't like 1 Peter. They stay away from it. In talking about experiencing hardship and suffering and justice, Peter says this, you, in chapter three, verse nine, you were called for this. You were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Suffering is an expected part of the Christian life. This truth in itself will never attract anyone to the Christian faith until they understand that because suffering is the way of Jesus, it also brings life. Jen Wilkins says, you can summarize 1 Peter this way, we should be willing to suffer unjustly because Christ was willing to suffer unjustly to bring us to God. Sometimes it's God's will for you to suffer. You can do everything good and still suffer. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, it means you're alive. We need to get rid of this idea of this smooth sailing God that when, when we do everything we can to please him, he makes everything incredible for us. It's just not what Jesus' life was like. He did everything right and he suffered. 
And if you follow Jesus, you're called to this. If, you, if I don't teach you to expect suffering life, then I'm not setting you up for, for a crisis in your faith. I can teach you, you do your part, everything's gonna go smooth. But when something goes wrong, when something goes bad in your life and you experience some illness or you experience a loss of a job or a friend betrays you or your marriage falls apart, you lose a loved one, you're gonna think, man, I did everything right. God, what's wrong with you? Where are you? But what you need to know that when those things happen, that you're called to this. You can have the presence of Jesus now and the promise of Jesus' work in the future. In suffering with Christ, you have strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. I want to close this way. I told you, your, your, your connection card, fill it out, that's fine. But what I want to do, I'm going to pray and I'm going to dismiss you. But I want the worship team to stay up here today because I'm going to open up the altars. I'm going to open up the altars for anybody who wants to come up here and have prayer. Now, I'm the first to tell you that Jesus can meet you right where you're at. He can. You can stay in your seat and Jesus can meet you. But there's something that takes place when we, by faith, get up and we walk forward. There is something that happens in the spiritual realm. We're making a declaration. We're also showing the church that we need, we need prayer. And there's something powerful when we join with our fellow brothers and sisters in prayer. Their faith joins us in our faith. We are a Pentecostal church. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to open up my altars because I think we've got a lot of people going through some really difficult times times and you just need to be encouraged today and the Holy Spirit wants to do that so I'm going to open it up I'm going to pray and after I pray you are dismissed we are so happy that you were with us this morning we can't wait to see you next week but I do want to open up these altars and if you have that connect card make sure you drop it off and there's a place when you walk out the doors you can hand it to one of our ushers we love we love tracking that because our staff does pray for you we do it's spiritual. We're not just trying to uh, get a read on, on feedback from our sermon. We, we want to join. We want to partner with you in this life. We want to partner with you spiritually. So there is, there is a spiritual element to those connect cards too. And we want you to fill those out so we can pray with you. But I'm going to close in prayer. And I want you to know if you got to go, you, no problem. If you want to stay and you want to pray, our altars are open. Father, we love you and we praise you and worship you. You are a good God. Your word is true, and we can stand on its truth. God, that no matter what comes our way, we can face it because we have you, and we have your presence and your power and your authority living in us. There is nothing that this world can throw at us to make us lose our hope. We know how the story ends. And so God, I pray over this church right now as we are entering into a new season as a country even, and we are seeing more and more open hatred and hostility towards us and what we believe. We remember the words that you said. Remember, if they hate you, they hated me. <laughs> we understand that when we said yes to you, it wouldn't be easy. But God, I am praying that you would encourage us today that if we are going through difficult times we would be encouraged today and that hope would once again be what rules and reigns in our hearts and our minds the hope that only comes through you god equip us to move forward as a church corporately to move forward and continue to proclaim your word and your truth and may you give us the boldness to stand for it i pray this in jesus name Jesus' name.